Good morning, everybody. Praise God. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time here, hello. I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. Hope you didn't come here to be entertained, because I'm not an entertainer. I teach the Bible. That's why we should be in church, to learn more about God, to follow His ways, or to come to know God, or, you know, to come back to God. That's why we should be at church and to fellowship with the Holy Spirit and God and with one another, but we should not be here to be entertained, whether you're going to your own church on Sunday morning or whether you're coming here. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray real quick, and uh, we know we need God's help to help us understand the Word, His Word, because we know His Word is spiritual, not carnal as Jesus spoke of in Gospel of John. So let's pray and ask God to help us and help our spiritual men and women and children understand His Word. And let's pray that God would change our lives more today by the Word, by His Holy Spirit. Lord, thank You so much for bringing us here today, Lord. Thank You so much, Lord God, for all those that are online and coming to listen to Gospel Saving Church, uh, even all over the world. God, thank You so much for them. And uh, Lord, I just Pray that you'd bless us all, Lord God, today. Bless us all, Lord God, with a deeper knowledge of you. Bless us all, Lord God, with today with a deeper knowledge of your ways and your truths, Lord, please. Lord, it should be the drive of every true born-again child of God that we should desire to know you more and desire the things of you more every day as we go on. Lord, if those are stopping or Lord, we're not having a desire, Lord, and we need to pray and get on our knees and repent because, Lord, your word is very clear. Those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in them, Lord. So we're either loving you or we're loving the world. I pray, dear God, that we would make a choice every day. Those of us that love you that are listening here, Lord, I pray that we'd make a choice every day to continue to love you and continue to surrender our lives to you. For those that are not yours, Lord God, I pray that them listening to this message is they're seeking you and that you'll see their earnest heart of seeking you for earnest reasons, Lord, and that you would come to them and help them come to repentance and to life and to Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things and pray all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 21 today, kind of a larger section, verses 15 through 30. I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles. If you were here last week and you listened last week, you know that we just go verse by verse. So we were in 1 through 14 last week or 14 through something. I forget what the verses were for last week. But anyway, we're continuing on 15 through 30. Title of the sermon today, The Jews Who Were Zealous for the Law of Moses. Simple title. Acts 21, 15 through 30. Let's go ahead and read it. I always read the verses before we start. God's word is important to me, so I do what's important to me. The Bible says this. Actually, Luke writes this. And after those days, we packed and went to Jerusalem. 16. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses 
saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must, certain meet, must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple and announced the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Triumphus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So we're not going to waste too much time. We have a lot of verses, so I'm going to jump right in. Verse 15 again, we read this. After those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. After those days, which would be the days uh, that were spent with Philip and the evangelist and his daughters, Paul and those with them, they pack up and head or continue to head for Jerusalem as they have been heading that way for a while now. He's been heading to Jerusalem despite the fact that, number one, remember the Holy Spirit's been telling him, hey, chains and tribulations are awaiting you when you get to Jerusalem. Well, here we see here in, in Acts 21, it's finally here. It's finally upon Paul. Number two, he's still headed to Jerusalem as He's been on the road and sea for a while, and even the devil got involved, remember, and started to speak through the disciples of Tyre, remember, and, and, and he tried to dissuade him from going, saying, oh, no, no, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go to Jerusalem. And number three, he's still heading to Jerusalem uh, as Paul gets closer to fulfilling his mission for God. Agabus, remember, a prophet of God, gives Paul a, a preparation confirmation message to help him know that Jerusalem was really where God wanted him to be in his life. But, of course, his closest friends don't like it. They don't see it that way. And they think, wow, no way. This can't be from God. Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. Paul, don't go. Like we read last week. And they try to dissuade him, even unto tears and continuing uh, nagging. Please don't go. Please don't go. Please don't go. Because they knew the bad things were going to happen to him. Paul had really faced some difficult resistance along the way from Satan and his friends as far as getting to Jerusalem. Ouch. You know, though, when serving God in Christ and how you really know you're really on the path is that difficult and hard things are going to come your way. Difficult, hard problems and things are going to go your way are, are going to happen to you because you know what? I heard this a long time ago from a brother or sister in the Lord. It was in a, it was in a little service that we used to get into and used to pray and, and let the Holy Spirit speak amongst us before we'd start you know, the, the sermon and or, or after the little bit of a message from the pastor. And, and this brother sister said this, you don't get curveballs sitting on the bench when you're playing baseball. And, and that means to say that you only get the curveballs when you're up to bat, when you're ready to go, when you're ready to swing, then that's when the curveball or the difficult times come. And that's the same thing we can expect if we're really serving God in the ministry, serving God, bad things are going to happen, unfortunately. 
Anyway, moving forward, verse 15, he and they are headed for Jerusalem, continuing to head for Jerusalem, despite all the difficult stuff he said to fight through to continue to go. Thankfully, in the next few verses here, some positive stuff. Verse 16, also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain man from uh, Cyprus. I'm I'm not going to butcher the name again. You know, you see it in the scripture there. An early disciple with whom we were lodged. What what happens here? He gets some more positive news. He gets an even bigger escort party to go with him to Jerusalem. He already, according to Acts 24, most likely had seven uh, travelers, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus, the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, Titus, and Triumphus of Asia. Plus, don't forget Luke, our recorder, the faithful travel companion of Paul. So he already has seven. And this day, in verse 16, sees him get some more disciples from Caesarea. Not sure how many, but the word disciples is used, meaning it's more than one definitely. So we know that that's you know, probably two or three or four could be, uh, as well as the fellow from Cyprus. So, so at this point, Paul could easily have between 10 and 15 travel, uh, traveling companions to help him make the trek. And remember, he's going on foot this time. He's not going by sea. By foot's a little bit of a harder travel. And he's got to go from where they are, Caesarea, he's got to go 75 to 80 miles to get to Jerusalem. That was the trek. That was the mileage. It's even still today. You can look it up on Google Maps anyway. So this large travel party heads for Jerusalem, but do they make it? Verse 17. Some more good news. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Uh, They make it. And Paul here again, he gets some here, some more positive stuff as the Christian brothers and sisters receive them gladly, which means that they were simply happy to see Paul. Uh, you know, hey, when you're a guy like Paul and you've, you've faced all the adversity that you have and, and people have been against you and people kind of come against you a lot, it's good when people are happy to see you. Paul was like, wow, that's awesome. And it, that's a positive sign from God. Verse 18, so on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders were present. So day one in Jerusalem, in verse 17, Paul gets to see some of the Christian uh, you know, ministers, probably those he's going to stay with in Jerusalem. That, that, was prob- that, was my, that was kind of on my heart. He's there, he, he's go- he goes up and sees, ju- I mean, just like, I mean, we, we, me and my family have done that before. We were gone, we were going to be visiting a church or this, any other thing. What do we do? We, we went and saw those that we were going to stay with and praise God they were happy to see him. Day two, verse 18, he gets in Jerusalem and what does he do? They meet, they bring him or he goes up with his travel companions to go see the big dogs. James and the elders, those would be the original 11 that Christ walked with. These weren't some random people. These were the guys that God kept in Jerusalem of the original 11 apostles that were there to run the church in Jerusalem. There was still a church in Jerusalem. What does Paul do next? He's got some good news for them. Verse 19, when he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He doesn't waste any time giving them the highlights and praise reports and all, I'm sure, the goods and the bads of all the time since they had you know, seen each other before. They had met one other time. Uh, remember, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that today. He had to go up to the Jerusalem Council to kind of talk about the same kind of issue that he faced today. But anyway, he goes in and he tells them, hey, this is, this is what's happened to me. Praise God, you know, all this stuff, you know, hey, this, that, and I healed this guy, and the other, and hey, you wouldn't believe it. And this is probably his biggest highlight. I, I just was able to spend three years in the den of the beasts. Oh, where? Oh, Ephesus. God gave me an open door there to, to 
teach at the school of Tyrannus. And, and while I was there, God, hey, planted a church there. And I was there for three years and all these people came and got saved and the church grew and it was the church at Ephesus. And hey, praise God. And I did it in the belly of the beast, which Ephesus, remember, was like the heart of the city of the, of, of the Diana worship. So he, he did, that was probably his biggest highlight. Um, now, I've been involved and heard of meetings where evangelists were called forth to talk about their exploits for Jesus Christ. And let me tell you what, those gatherings are exciting. Uh, ministry, when you're in it, is often not fun. When, when, you're, when you're serving God and it's hard and the bad things are happening and, and man, it's easy to get down, as boy, I know, it, ha- it happens to me once in a while too. But I'll tell you, when it is fun, when you realize it's fun, is when you're talking about it. When you're talking about, because you always seem to remember, yeah, you got the bad things there, but you seem to remember the highlights. Oh, yeah, remember when God did this, when we were there, yeah, some bad things happened. I mean, God used those bad things to, to spring up something amazingly good. And, oh, man, and I'll tell you, it's tremendously exciting when you're in those types of conversations and meetings because the things that God does with and through you out in the field, the, the supernatural, amazing things uh, are, are really uplifting. They're, they're, I've been on some spiritual great highs when I've been talking about my, the exploits that God has done through me and with me in my last about 20 years of ministry for the Lord. Were the apostles, verse 20, excited to hear how God worked through Paul? Yes, read the first part or the first sentence there of verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That's great. I'm so glad to see they were happy. They could have been jealous because <laughs> that's easy to do in the Christian faith, right? That's easy to do in our flesh, right? We hear about something good that happens to somebody and we go, oh man, I wish that was me. That's jealousy. Well, that's not of God. Here, these guys are happy. They realize, hey, we're co-laborers with Christ. And Paul, who's co-laboring with us, man, we're, you know, and if they were praying for him, they would get some of the benefits of what was happening to Paul. And so anyway, they're excited for him, and that's great. But as good as that was that the original apostles are so excited about Paul's good news of God's amazing work through him, they have some both good and bad news to give back to him. More bad than good, unfortunately. Read the rest of verse 20. After they glorified the Lord. Uh, Read the rest. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. Definition of myriads is would be had multiple, but they were all really, really big. Ten thousand or an innumerable amount. So when you think about myriads of Jews, you think about they're they're talking about like cities full or, or cities getting full of Jews who had turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as God's. Messiah, and they tell him, Paul, hey, thousands upon thousands of Jews have believed upon Jesus Christ as Messiah, and that's good news. That's that's good news. But the bad news is, the bad news is, is they got some bad news for him right next. These Jews that had turned to Christ Jesus as God's Messiah, also the rest of that verse, and he says they are zealous for the law. And that is bad. And that is terrible, terrible news. Why was being zealous for the law of Moses a bad, terrible thing for the Jews who turned to Christ as God's promised Messiah? Well, the apostles are referring to the law that God gave to the Israelites through Moses in the Old Testament, also called the law of Moses by the Jews. In fact, that's how they know it today. It's called the law of Moses. 
And the law of Moses was one that God gave to his Jewish people to live by for moral reasons, for spiritual reasons, for ceremonial reasons. Uh, there were food regulations, feast regulations, uh, worship regulations, the keeping of the Sabbath, being circumcised. That was given, uh, that was given officially to you know, Moses. Well, that was given a long time ago through Abraham. But mind you, it was, it was given through Moses, of course, as kind of for all of God's people. Well, there were about... There were over 600 regulations and, and you know, laws, you know, Levitic, Levitical and, and, and so on and so forth for food. There were over 600 laws that God gave through Moses and so on and so forth. So, so why would it be a bad thing for them to be zealous for the law of Moses? Well, at its core, and even for Christians today, it's not bad to be zealous for the law of Moses. It's not even bad to be zealous for the law of the land. The Bible says, Paul tells us in Romans, that it's a good thing that we're, that we're keepers of the law of the land. God gave some really amazing moral, dietary, you know, feast. He gave some awesome uh, laws that, you know, his children were to follow. Even today, it's a good thing as good ways that God gave to lay down that we should live like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, put the, thy God above all thy other God. I mean, they're great and awesome laws to keep. Uh, on one hand, they're awesome if even we're even in a way, in the good way, if we're zealous for those laws and zealous for the laws of the land. Those are good things even for Christians today. They're good things because they're good ways for us to live. They're good moral and good ways for us to live. You want to live morally? You want to live right? Live the laws of Moses. Live the Ten Commandments. Live the laws of the land. There's, there's a couple comedians that are pretty famous in the world, and I'm not, I'm not too big into giving props to people, but uh, I'm not going to give their names. But there's two comedians, and the long story short is they're professing atheists is the deal. And... The thing about them is, well, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but they actually have been on record as saying, hey, even though we're atheists, we still believe that Christ's ways and the teachings of the Bible are awesome ways to live as good people. So they do their best to live the ways that Jesus said to live and to live the ways that God's Ten Commandments and the Bible says that are good to live, okay? And which is amazing because you think, well, wow, these guys don't even believe in God, yet they, but they still see the value of the ways of God in the Bible as being good moral ways to live as, as far as loving your neighbor, you know, being a good person. They still see those values. So again, it's good in a way to be zealous for the law of Moses, zealous for the Ten Commandments, zealous for the laws of the Lamb. But in this case... As unfortunately, in most cases, even still today, uh, with the issue of being zealous for the law of Moses or zealous for the ways of the Ten Commandments, the bad issue and news to Paul here is that, and that he's going to experience, is that those who are zealous for the law of Moses, zealous for the Ten Commandments, those that especially, even those that accept Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, Savior, which is good, but as they said, they think it's necessary to keep the law of Moses and to keep the Ten Commandments as a way to be right with God and right with Christ. The problem with these Jews and many today, both being zealous for the law of Moses and accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah, is that their faith in salvation from God's wrath against sinners 
becomes dependent upon their successful keeping of the law of Moses, all 626 laws, including the Ten Commandments, as kind of with Jesus Christ there, but as really a side dish. This was a huge problem in the early church. This still is a problem today. Not as big or as huge of a problem, but it is a problem. Uh, Many churches even still today, I'm going to read you a quote later on, but many churches even today believe that they need to attach something, some work, to Jesus Christ's death and sacrifice on the cross in order then for you to be right with God. And this concept, though, causes a schism in the church, and it causes a schism in the Bible's teaching. Uh, Remember that schism, I told you I'd bring it up before, but remember this is the last time that Paul was in Jerusalem with the original apostles, Acts 15.1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were attaching a work. Yo, I know, yeah, 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 Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, but, but Jesus Christ isn't enough. See, what Jesus Christ, but yeah, but, but you're supposed to do this, and unless you do both, well, then you know what, you just can't be saved. And of course, Paul, remember, this happened in Antioch, the church that he was there working with at the time. And of course, Paul Paul spoke against it, saying, no, 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 that's wrong. Christ is enough. Christ is the only way. And of course, the you know, Paul wasn't, the, they just did whatever I said because I'm the Apostle Paul. Paul took some brethren and he went down to Jerusalem or over to Jerusalem or wherever, up or down, wherever, over to Jerusalem. And he talked with these same apostles. He's saying, as we'll see later, they, they even affirm that they talk with them about this. And they come up with the idea that, no, 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 no. You know what? Hey, the Gentiles, that, you know, they're good. You know, all they have to do is these, these few things. And so these that the apostles were talking to, uh, to Paul about in Acts 21 weren't exactly saying in the exact identical ways that salvation came by and through Jesus Christ and, and, and the law of Moses, but they might as well have been because that's really what they're saying. And I'll show you as we move on in our text today. I don't know if you picked it up in the initial reading, uh, but look at what uh, look at what the 11 tell Paul about these people. They say, verse 11, or I'm sorry, they say, but they have been informed about you that you teach the, all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. You can just see there that they're angry with Paul. They think Paul has told the people, the Gentiles, the Jews, hey, you don't have to keep the law of Moses. You're good to go, just this, that, and the other thing. And they think that that's what Paul's told them because that is what Paul has been teaching people. And just read the whole book of Romans and you'll see how Paul looks at the law and Christ and circumcision and the ways of Moses, the law of Moses. And anyway, if they didn't think that salvation came by Jesus Christ plus the law of Moses, why be mad at Paul if he did tell anybody, whoever, Gentiles, Jews, to not, hey, it's not necessary for you to keep the law of Moses and love Jesus Christ and circumcision and all that stuff to be saved. No, no anger is necessary unless down deep inside they thought salvation came by their turning to Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, plus attaching the works of the keeping of the law of Moses. But the fact that they're angry with Paul proves to me that they were attaching the works of the laws of Moses to Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, and his sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins. So Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, pay for our sins, plus, 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 
we got to have the law of Moses in there because, you know, that's what we do. And, then, you know, that's how we're right with God. So, so again, this was and is a huge, huge problem. If, if you want to see just what kind of a problem it was in the early church, again, just read over Paul's epistle or, or the book of Romans that he, read, that he wrote. And I'll tell you, most of the entire book of Romans is about this subject. If we're going to look at today, I'm going to read some of the verses. I'm going to give you, I hope you have your notepads out. I want you to record these. I want you to go. I really would love you to read the whole book of Romans, but I, I really want you to write these down and say, hey, I'm going to go look at these because I want to see what he's talking about. Uh, but Paul addresses this topic and argues against this false doctrine of Jesus Christ plus the works of the law for salvation and almost the entire epistle of Romans. It's crazy. Uh, scripture verses for Paul's argument against Jesus Christ plus works for salvation. Just write these down if you want to write them down. Uh, don't, don't look at them now. I'm going to read a few of them now. If you, if you read them all now and go through the book of Romans now, you're not going to hear the teaching on it. And you're not going to hear what God has to say through me. Put Romans 3, uh, verses 20 through 22 specifically, but read uh, verse 20 through the end of the chapter. So Romans 3. 20 through 22 specifically, we're going to look at that one today, but then to the end of the chapter. Romans 4, 13 through 16. Romans 7, 4 through 5. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Romans 9, 30 and 31. And Romans 10, 4. We're going to look at about three or four of them now. But of course, you know, you can hear me speak them, but not really get the full hey, what is he saying, or what is Paul saying, what is God saying, until you go and you read him yourself in context and through the whole ch and all the chapters and so on and so forth. But, but here's what Paul has to say about accepting Jesus Christ, turning to Jesus Christ, plus works on top of that for righteousness. Romans 3, 20 through 22, Paul says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that's the keeping of the, when he said the law, the, that's the law of Moses, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law doesn't bring you into a right standing with God. You keeping the law, you following the law, you loving the law, being zealous for the law, it doesn't make you right before God. For by the law, he goes on to say, is the knowledge of sin. Hey, without the law, without the law to tell us, hey, don't do this, do this, don't do that, don't do this, we wouldn't know what to do. And of course, by the knowledge of it, hey, uh, hey, oh no, I did break the law, I did steal. Oh, wow, that's wrong. But now he says, the righteousness of God apart from the law, apart, you see there's the word apart. That means they're not together uh, for now. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, speaking to Christians in the Roman church there, in the, in the church in Rome there, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Hey, he's saying, hey, right there, hey, the law to you is dead. The law to you to follow the law? Don't even follow it. You don't have to. It's not necessary because you have become dead to the law through Christ's sacrifice. Through his body means through his sacrifice of his body on the cross. He says that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. 
Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore, now we know this one, right? Everybody knows this. Even even non-believers know this one. A lot of non-believers who kind of mean those that are deceived. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, uh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Everybody knows that verse. But if you just keep reading, there's a huge segment about the law here. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What law? The law of Moses. Hey, through Christ, the law of sin and death, Moses, that's that's gone. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Paul just said the law of Moses was weak, which it was. It was absolutely, hence why God had to replace it and bring a new covenant and the blood of his son, the one that we are supposed to be celebrating every day of our lives and communion often when we get together and, you know, the communion, we're taking the bread and taking the, the cup, which represents Christ's body and his, and, his, and his blood, right? So the law being weak in the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that that law is all fulfilled if we just love God and, and love others. And give our lives to God, and we decide to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is enough for salvation, not Jesus Christ plus the law of Moses or any work of righteousness at all, any at all, any at all. I'll speak on this problem at the end of the message, but I want to move on for now to the rest of the verses of our study. So anyway, what do the apostles do after they tell Paul this problem the Jews have concerning him? Well, first, verse 22, what then, they say, the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. They realize that they must get everybody together, all the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, right, that are not part of the leadership there, right? And they need to talk, they need to talk about it amongst themselves, and they need to talk about these problems with Paul, uh, the things that he has taught the Gentiles and the Jews. They do this because they realize that the Jews who are zealous for the law of Moses, they're against Paul. They do this because, wow, Paul's done something bad. He's told people that the law of Moses is not necessary for salvation. <gasps> oh, no. And they're going to hear, guess what? Paul was a pretty, uh, even though in Scripture we read of Paul as this mighty man of God, we read of in his writings, he says of himself, and what you read about him in Scripture, he really was a nothing of a man. He was kind of, people say, uh, descriptions of him, that he was kind of like, had a hunch, and he's hunched over. We know he didn't have good eyesight by an interaction that he had between some chief priests and stuff, when the chief priest was standing right there, and he was he, he said something to him, and he got smacked, and he said, you, I'm gonna, God's gonna do, you know, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? Oh, the high priest is here? He didn't know. How could he see? So he he wasn't really a, a, a foreboding figure. I, I'm I'm a huge man. Oh, I said hi to a little girl in the restaurant uh, the other day, and she was like, whoa, and she kind of like stammered back and like kind of like tried to go hide behind mama. I'm, I'm about 6'6 six, six and about 300 pounds, so I'm a very foreboding figure. But Paul was not, but he brought a presence with his preaching for Jesus Christ that was probably 50 or 100 times bigger than me in, in the world. So they were going to find out that he was here, uh, and then... 
What do they do about this? What do they talk about doing right here? Verses 23 and 24, they, they tell them. And this, this kind of breaks my heart. This, this next part kind of breaks my heart. I'd, I'd never seen this before. Uh, when I was doing this study, God showed it to me. It's kind of sad, but I, I want you to listen and I'll explain it. Therefore, verse 23, 24, therefore, they, he says, or they say to him, do what we tell you. We four men who have taken a vow, take them to be purified. Uh, take, yourself, take yourself with them and be purified and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. What did they tell them to do? Because that sounds like Old Testament stuff, right? Absolutely. That is something that the Old Testament Jew would have done to be obedient to God. God said those things. And if you want to take a vow, do this and shave your head, yada, yada, Because we know that the New Testament speaks against vows. Vows are dangerous. Yet here, they have go take a vow and they bring some other Jews in there. What are they telling them to do? They're telling them to disappoint God. They're telling them that he disappointed me. They disappointed me. Because they tell them to disappoint God because they are cowering in fear to these Jews who are zealous for the law of Moses. They cower in fear because, listen to what they do. In a, in a sense, when it, this is what they tell them to do. They make Paul go openly, out loud and boldly to do what? Play the good Jew who kept the law of Moses and every little detail of the law of Moses in the eyes of the Jews who were zealous for the law of Moses to do what? Just to make them happy. Now this, by the way, is putting a band-aid on the problem. It's not solving the problem. It, they put a huge band-aid on the problem because what the Jews who were zealous for the law of Moses were not informed of is that all these apostles in the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, all of these guys that are here right now with Paul, well, they all agree uh, to tell the Gentiles that they don't have to keep the law of Moses. And Paul and they had a, they talked about, hey, how should we, you know, how should we act? And in Paul's letters, and and and, and Paul even chastised Peter for going to the Gentiles' house and and playing a Gentile, like you know, where he didn't wasn't keeping the law of Moses. But then when Peter got around Jews, Peter then had to play the good Jew, and Paul had chastised. Peter for doing this very same thing as he does right, as they tell Paul to do right here. And they did it this time. They did it the time some Jews, remember, tried to poison the Christian church in Antioch, verse 15, with the same poison of, unless a person is circumcised, so keeping the law of Moses, they can't be saved. By the way, that equation looks like, it's, it's the equation by which many, many, many uh, people that even call themselves of Christ and even Christian churches today, it's one they go by faith in Jesus Christ plus works equals salvation. And that's what they were telling Paul to do. And they even admit that they were the ones that told uh, Paul to tell the Gentiles and agree with Paul, hey, the law of Moses is not necessary for salvation. Look at verse 25. But, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we, 
they're referencing themselves, have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep, them, uh, keep themselves from the things offered to idols, from blood, from the things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So they even agree here, hey, we've agreed that the Gentiles, and even though they say the Gentiles, the Scripture, Jesus, Him coming, Him being enough, that was for everybody. If the Jews wanted to keep the law of Moses, that would have been a great thing. Because their qualm was that Paul was teaching the Gentiles and the Jews, hey, if you don't, you know, you don't have to keep the law of Moses anymore. You don't have to keep those things. In essence, really, though, the, the Jews or Gentiles, nobody is required to keep any kind of law to, in order to please God. No law. No law plus Jesus Christ saves you. There you have it. Here in Acts 21, the Jews who were zealous for the law of Moses were only told that Paul had been the one to tell the Gentiles, and he, Paul was, I'm sure, telling Jews this too, because that's was Paul's message, Jesus Christ alone. And so here they admit that they had been ones that co-kind of authored this doctrine with Paul, yet here what we see is, is that they don't, nobody ever told these Jews that were zealous for the law of Moses that, hey, the council and Paul, hey, we had all realized that you know what, the law of Moses doesn't save people. We had all realized that. And you know what? Nobody told them. They were only angry with Paul for teaching this doctrine. They were only angry with Paul for telling people, hey, you don't need anything, the law or nothing, with Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And so, you know what, maybe had... Uh, there come a time, which I'm sure there was, when these Jews who were zealous for the law of Moses came and they said, well, we've heard that Paul, you know, teaches this. If, if the brethren there in Jerusalem would have said, well, yeah, that's what we believe. Hey, we believe it's not necessary to keep the law of Moses and Jesus Christ to be saved. And, you know, anybody that turns to the, you know, to the Lord Jesus Christ, they following Jesus Christ is what they want, what they should do, because that's what Jesus said. Maybe they wouldn't have been so mad with Paul here because they only thought it was Paul. Really, the disciples, somebody dropped the ball. Somebody was a coward. Maybe the co council, maybe one of the, just one of the 11 was the one that dropped the ball here. But anyway, they, they kind of dropped the ball and they kind of make Paul the scapegoat. So do their efforts work? And to tell Paul, hey, go in here, take these Jews, uh, you know, go in here, do this Old Testament thing and play the good Jew before all these, you know, Jews that were zealous for the law of the Lord, <coughs> the law of Moses. Does it work? Look at verses 26 through 30. Then Paul took the men, so he does what they say, and the next day, having been purified with them, he entered the temple, announced the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them, which they were going in to make offerings. Now, this is total law of Moses stuff. And the way Paul writes in the book of Romans, and how he explains it all, there is no need for anyone to do any, any of this stuff of the law of Moses along with Jesus Christ. The law of Moses has been, had been really done away with. Again, they were good moral ways to live. And if somebody wanted to live those ways, those, those should be ways that people would live, good godly ways. But those ways were not supposed to be attached to Jesus Christ. Anyway, so verse 27, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stir up the whole crowd and lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, this is the man who teaches all men everywhere. See, all men. 
So they, they knew Paul was teaching this, they knew Paul was teaching this to the Jews and the Gentiles. As again, that's what Christ said, I'm enough, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. <coughs> Meaning, hey, I'm the one you follow now, not the law of Moses. And so this is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They, now, here they kind of get a mob mentality, as we've already seen this happen once with Paul. They kind of are out of their minds with this mob mentality. And they, they had seen Paul, it says here, verse 29, for they had previously seen Triumphus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. So he was walking around with Gentiles because Triumphus was an Ephesian that would have made him a Gentile, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So they just assumed in their mob crazy mentality that Paul had actually come into the temple with Gentiles, which under the new covenant, a Gentile can go into the temple. Uh, as, I, as I prayed before the sermon, uh, was, uh, as, I was, as I prayed before I started teaching, <laughs> the New Testament in Christ's blood, the Bible talks about how Christ's blood has broken the veil between God and mankind. There, there's no more holy of holies that's held back from anybody that's in Christ. If you're in Christ, you can go directly to the throne of God. You can talk to God one-on-one, -on -one, unlike the Old Testament, unlike the law of Moses. And so it wouldn't even have been a problem if Paul brought Gentiles into the temple. But, but he didn't. He was bringing Jews in, but they had a crazy mob mentality, and they thought that he did. So verse 30, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together. That would have been the Jewish people. This was Jerusalem, so it would have been the Jewish people in the city. And they ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And it doesn't get any better for Paul once we go on next week. So what, what happens with the disciples' plan with Paul is they fail. And Paul pays the terrible price for it, for it, the terrible price that God's Holy Spirit had been telling about since the time he left Ephesus. They get Paul to boldly play the good Jew of the Old Testament, following Moses' laws openly in front of all the Jews in the city, just, just to prove that, that Paul thought, you know, oh yeah, the law of Moses is, is it, with Christ, and they didn't buy it. The Jews of Asia, and then they kind of yell out, and, and so that's the Jews in the city. Uh, I'm sure many of the myriads of Jews who had believed, but they were zealous for the law. And they take Paul, and they basically arrest him, and they seize him off, and we're going to see next week again. It doesn't get any better for Paul. Well, we'll continue on verse 31 next week. Christ's apostles here fail to take the responsibility that they should have taken with these Jews who were zealous for the law, and they should have said, hey, you know, we have agreed for that for the Gentiles, but you know, really, Christ said I'm a fulfillment of the law, which means that if you're in Christ, as Paul writes in Romans, another good one in Romans, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no, in God's eyes, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a Jew. You're no longer a Gentile. You're a child of God. Just like in our world today, we say, oh, there's all those Baptists or all those Protestants or all those Methodists or all those this. If you're in Christ, you're not a Baptist. If you're in Christ, you're not a Methodist. You're not a Lutheran. You're a child of God. We, we need to stop labeling people because, again, Bible says if we're in Christ, there's no Jew nor Gentile. We're all in Christ. If we're in Christ, then we're in Him. 
and we're children of the Most High God. And so what happens to Paul here is really sad, really sad indeed. Please listen to me. Please, 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 all you who may be listening to me today, I want you to know this. You need to know this. Salvation in Jesus Christ is in Jesus Christ alone, and it's not coupled with any work. The law of Moses, the law of the land, the law of the Ten Commandments, salvation in Jesus Christ is not by Jesus Christ and anything else. Salvation in Jesus Christ cannot be coupled with the work, even the good works of the law of Moses, because if it is, if it's coupled with any work, well, we must be baptized in order to be saved. Oh, we must be this to be saved. Oh, we must Jesus Christ and this to be saved. If it is, then Jesus Christ's death was for nothing. Nothing at all. Because here's why. You could, if you could find your righteousness according to the law before God or according to any good work before God, then Christ wouldn't have had to die. To, to die. Remember Paul, Romans 3, 20 through 22, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, separate from the law, so no righteousness according to the law, the righteousness of God apart from the law, he says, has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For as the same Paul wrote in Romans 10.4, as Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which means he's the culmination of all the law and the prophets, right? He is all the law and all the prophets wrapped up into him and him alone. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And at the same Paul, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he tells us how salvation really comes. For it is by grace that you have been saved. That's God's grace of, hey, I'm going to forgive man through Jesus Christ. That's God's grace. The fact that God offers his salvation to unworthy sinners that's God's grace, and by God's grace, we've been saved through what? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 through 10, through faith, our faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God and not of works. The salvation is not of works. It's not, the salvation is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. At least anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you must be careful. Please, to never attach any good work, whether it be water baptism, circumcision, keeping of the Sabbath, keeping of the Law of Moses, keeping of the Ten Commandments, whatever, to the salvation that's in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Many believe even today, though, and this is, this is one of the largest false doctrines that's crept into most denominations, many denominations in the Christian church. Many believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. As I was doing some research this weekend, I even came across a church website. It's a huge, huge denomination, huge, huge denomination that this church belongs to. And they stated this openly and just right there in their beliefs. They had about seven or eight, what we believes for Jesus Christ under their beliefs. 
we believe that the water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ is essential for forgiveness of sins. Yet Jesus Christ said, because of me, your sins are forgiven. Because of me. First uh, John, he speaks, if, if we sin, then confess our sin to, to God and Jesus Christ, right? For he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Water baptism is necessary for us to be cleansed from our sins? No. That's a work attached to Jesus Christ as Lord and his sacrifice that's not according to the Bible. And, and you cannot be saved because if you do these things, if you live these ways, if you act these ways, if you have this mindset, you cannot, God will reject you when you come before him and stand before him. Why? Because you're coming to God your way. You're not coming to God like he said by his way. You're coming to God your way. And again, if you come to God your way and you reject his way, by, and rejecting his way would be like, again, if a recipe was perfect and it needed nothing and, and it was just totally against every rule of everything to add something to a recipe because it was perfect, as Christ was perfect, to add anything to it would, would sour the taste. It would make it less than perfect. And so just like Christ, if you add anything to his sacrifice and his death on the cross for you to be saved in God, in Christ Jesus, and to become righteous before God, you taint it. And God has a taste, and his taste is, he says, my taste is for the sacrifice of my son. That's the only thing that will appease my wrath is the sacrifice of my son. For he, God, has made a way to himself and into his eternity, it's not our eternity, it's not our heaven, it's his. And it is by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and not by any work. Least, as Paul writes in Ephesians, we have an opportunity to say, Hey, God, yeah, look at me. I did this good thing and I saved myself. Yeah, I see there, Lord, I followed Jesus Christ, but then you know what? I showed you that I could be saved. I got baptized. See there, God? I, I did it. And, and the Bible says that God is preeminent. Christ is preeminent. God is preeminent. He, he, to, to Him be all the glory and all the honor forever and ever. Amen. Not to Him and, well, a little piece for me, too. I got to get a little something in there because I, you know, I got to make myself feel good. No. Uh, he's made a way to him in his eternity. There was and is only one payment for the sins of mankind that God will accept until forever, and that's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone with no work added to it, period, then. In, in regard to salvation, uh, being by Jesus Christ plus works, Jesus Christ prayed to, the to his heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, in Matthew 26, 39, and he even asked the same thing. Uh, oh, uh, Matthew 26, 39, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And, and how did that end up? There Jesus Christ said, Hey, if there's any other way other than me having to go to that terrible, horrible, awesome, you know, horrible, horrible, awful cross, then I want it. Jesus Christ was like, I don't think that's not, I know how that's going to turn out. That's going to be painful. 
and they're going to hurt me a lot. And I'm going to go through lots of pain and suffering. You know what, God, if there's any way I don't have to do that, then Lord, please let this cup pass. Let, let, let mankind be saved some other way other than by my sacrifice. And well, how'd that end up? Well, we know, Bible says, God sent an angel to strengthen Jesus Christ so he could go through it. But he made Jesus Christ go to the cross and pay the only payment God Almighty would accept for our sins. And that was him and him alone on the cross, plus nothing else. Again, salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Like Paul said, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and this salvation and that not of yourselves, the salvation... It's a gift of God, not of works. And then he says, he goes on to say, yeah, good works are coming, and they were prepared for good works. So yeah, it's good to keep good works, but the equation for salvation is God's grace plus our putting our faith in Jesus Christ equals salvation. And then, as I just said, the good works shall follow because we were created for them. If you are a truly born-again person, you have followed God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ and not by your ways. And as Paul said there in Ephesians, good works should follow this transformation in Jesus Christ. Does that sound like you? I mean, Scripture is full of it. Jesus stood up at a great feast, a great festival, a great feast in John, and he said, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says... Out of him will flow rivers of living water. Do you see how that works? He who believes in Jesus Christ, as Scripture has said, believes in him and upon him like God's way of salvation and only, coming to him and through him only to get to God. So that's salvation. That's the salvation he's talking about. Out of him will flow rivers of living water. If you're really saved, you came to God and Christ, God's way, and then if you did it the right way, naturally things are going to come out of you. Naturally things, rivers of living water, things, uh, good works, love, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If you've really been born again, then naturally as you live on, all of a sudden, if you've really been saved, you're going to commit that sin. Oh, the one you had been doing your whole life. Oh, for me, one of those sins was pornography. I loved pornography before I was saved. I came to Christ. I surrendered to Christ, as we're going to read about how Jesus said to get saved, uh, because there is a way to have faith in Him that He said, this is, how you have, this is how you do it. We'll look at that in just a moment. But I'll never forget. And then after I came to Christ and I was born again, I could feel it. It was my whole, I, my whole insides changed. Obviously, I stayed the same physically. But my whole insides changed, my whole chemistry, my whole mindset, my whole everything changed. And, and that first time, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, oh, I'm, I want to do this thing. I, I, as I'm watching it, I'm going, whoa, oh, man, what am I doing? I don't, I don't even, this is disgusting. And I got done, and I swear to you, if you're born again, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be just for this, but it could be for alcohol or drugs or, or hurting people or getting angry, whatever it may be. If you're born again, you've been saved, you come to God through Christ like you're supposed to, then after you commit that sin, it's like dirty gravel in your mouth. It's like, oh, oh get it out. Oh, get it out. I can't do it no more. It's disgusting. I can't. Ugh, gross. And which means that's called sanctification. 
God comes and lives inside of you. His Holy Spirit comes inside of you, makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus. You change. You, you change from the fleshly man, you're still a fleshly man, to one that wants to obey God in Christ and righteousness and truth because God's Holy Spirit is love and truth and, and joy and, and righteousness. And so these things are going to be you if you've come to Him like the Bible says, not in religiosity, but in surrender. Like, like Jesus Christ says in Matthew 16, 24. He says this, because coming to Christ is awesome. And, and, and by faith, as he said, he, those who believe in me, as Scripture has said, well, how do we believe upon him? As Scripture has said, well, of course, that he is God's Messiah. He is God's Christ, which means he's the only way to God the Father. That's, that's the way we believe upon him. But Jesus Christ said that we're supposed to believe upon him for this salvation in a certain way. Because I, I can believe in Jesus. I mean, heavens, the Mormons believe in a Jesus, and the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a Jesus, and, and you know the Muslims believe in a Jesus. They all believe in a Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. So, of course, Jesus gave away that we were supposed to believe upon him as Scripture as says, and he gives it to us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. So here we go. Then Jesus said to his disciples, which would be for everybody, because he wanted them to teach the whole world, right? go forth in all the world and preach the gospel, Matthew 16. And he says this, he says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And that's where your relationship with God starts. Denying yourself is denying the lordship that you have over your life and it's a heart decision because it's no decision you can make in the flesh. You can't make a decision to go, okay, with my hands or with, with my feet or with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this righteous work and get saved. No, no, no. Denying yourself is something you do inside. And you inside, inside, you go, you know what? I'm going to, Jesus Christ is my way. And, and you know what, Jesus? Here, here I am. Save me. I, Jesus, I need you. And you know what? I'm sorry for being the wretched, evil sinner that I am. And you know, Jesus Christ, I need you. I need you. I need your salvation. I need your righteousness. I need you. And, and you know what? Deny self means making him the Lord of your life. You then making a decision to turn to him and do things his way. <laughs> That's really what it all amounts out to. I'm going to turn to him. His way is, trust in me for everything. Don't worry. Follow me. as Take up your cross, he goes on to say, and he goes on to say, lastly, and follow me. But the deny self was first, and that's where we get saved. And then the taking up the cross and the follow me come after, because those are then, those then get to the works. Those then gets to the things that God wants you to do after he gives you a new heart, after he gives you a new mind. Then we're supposed to take up our cross, which I'm not going to get into what that is today. But following me, that's a pretty simple concept. Getting into God's word and saying, all right, Jesus Christ, what do you want me to do? It's just like getting hired at a job, right? You get hired at a job, you go in there and you show them your earnest desire to work there. God, if you deny yourself, hey, God, I'm giving my earnest desire. I want Jesus Christ. Take my life, waving the white flag of surrender. Take the wheel, however you want to put it. Lord, come into my home and sit on my chair. And every guy out there that's listened to me, they know what that means. Come into my house, God, and you know what? I'll, I'll take that dumpy one over in the corner. Take my chair, God. That, that means you're giving God 
the chair that's the man's chair. That's the chair where the man sits. That's where he kind of rules his house from. And in your heart, you have one of those. And you come in and you say, hey, God, come into my life and sit on the chair of my life. Sit on the throne of my heart. That's what I want you to do, God. Please, I need you. And that's salvation. Taking up your cross and following me are all works, and they're all great works to do, but they all come after salvation. They don't have anything to do with the salvation. God wants you to turn to the one whom he gave you to turn to for eternal life, and that's Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. And if this is not you, whether you've turned into religiosity, whether you only believed on Jesus Christ plus works when you first started, or whether you've never believed upon Jesus Christ at all, Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he is truly the only one that can give you rest for your soul. You won't find rest for your soul in religiosity. You won't find rest for your soul in Jesus Christ plus works. You won't find rest for your soul in works alone for salvation. As, as the majority of the religions opposite of Christianity, that's what they believe. Do these great works, do these great works, and then I'll be saved. You won't find any rest for your souls. But in Jesus Christ, you can have rest for your souls. Please come to Him today if I described you. And if you're your, if you, you do belong to God, and you, you could say today, no, 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 I have come to Christ. And no, no, then I warn you, because it's almost happened to me, don't fall into religiosity. Don't come to Christ and then be in Christ for five or ten years and then go, oh, you know what, I think, I think those works do have some. And then fall into a mindset of, I've got to do these things in order to be right in God's sight. Because that's the same thing. That's like a dog returning to his vomit. That's, that's, that's a person that's come to Christ and then you go back to your vomit, which is the ways of the world to be saved, not the ways of the Bible. So be warned and follow Christ and believe in Christ and trust in Christ and surrender to Christ every day or begin today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much, Lord God, that your word has the words to eternal life. For God, it is your heaven, not ours. It's your heaven, not ours. So God, I pray, Lord God, that we would uh, strive, as Jesus told a, a young man in Luke, strive to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean we can work for it, but if we're striving, we're seeking your heart. We're seeking your heart. You've, you've put it in us. You're calling every one of us, Lord God. You're calling all the people all over the world so you get all the glory. Lord, all you want us to do is respond. Respond by seeking you, by faith. And then once, Lord God, you reveal yourself to us, by faith, Lord God, you'll help us turn to you as you saw our earnest heart to want that job, to, to be part of your kingdom, to be part of your family. Please, dear God, turn people's hearts with this message and with your word and by your Holy Spirit all over the world. Dear God, today, turn to Jesus Christ. Allow him to come to repentance that leads unto life in Christ. Thank you, Lord God. We love you and praise you and ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.